Awesome. Thanks. We'll have a little bit of a Q&A afterwards. I'll try and keep this brief. I love to talk, so it, it could tend towards the long side. I'll try and not let that happen, though. Uh, my name is Nate Herbst, and just stating my bias, I'm going to tell you I'm a non-denominational Christian. I am not a Mormon, and so obviously there are some, some differences of position there, but I'm not going to let those uh, create um, dishonesty or anything like that. I'll get more into that in a minute. I'm an FLC graduate. I graduated from here 10 years ago this spring with a degree in chemistry. So I like evidence and analytical thinking, and I like uh, hard evidence that you can actually put your hand on and, and check it out and evaluate it in the lab or in front of your face, you know? I do a ministry up here called Connect. Probably you've heard of it, and you probably have an opinion on it. And I just want to encourage you, if you've heard bad things about it or anything like that, uh, come talk to me or give us a second chance. We really strive to love students no matter where they're coming from, not based on whether or not they agree with us. And sometimes we haven't been perfect at that. And so I'm definitely sorry if you've heard bad things about us. And if you've heard good things, that is super exciting. But anyway, we do a lot up here. I also do a radio show on KDUR called The God Solution. It's every Sunday morning at 8.30 at, uh, a.m. And it's a show where we evaluate evidence and things like that for faith. So sometimes it's specifically concerning Christianity, but other shows will go into broader topics like the Big Bang and how it points to a creator and the beginning of the universe and things like that. But anyway, uh, as we begin, I always want to encourage people, and we actually did a show on this a couple weeks ago, that tolerance is important. And by tolerance, what I think is uh, meant is the ability to evaluate the evidence, see where it leads, and then respect and love and accept each other regardless of our own opinions on those issues. Right? So we can disagree and say, I have major disagreements with you, and then love each other nonetheless and realize that as people made in the image of God, we can respect and love and honor each other regardless of our differences. And um, I've been maligned even in front of classes by professors and things like that, and it doesn't ever feel good. And so we never want to do that to somebody else, right? We never want to malign them personally. So as we talk today, we'll evaluate evidence for and against different aspects of Mormonism, but ultimately we'll also share some history, also share some of where the church is at today, and some of the positive contributions of, of the church, in my estimation, right? And you might have other differences. So I'd love to hear those during the Q&A time. Um, as I stated before, I do have a bias. I'm not a Mormon, right? I think it's important whenever somebody's speaking on these issues to reveal their bias and to let you know so that you can make your best judgment based on the evidence for yourself. And with that statement, I want you to know that a bias is not always a bad thing, right? Uh, a bias can be a good thing, depending on how you allow it to progress. Here's one example. Some people would have like a naturalistic bias, and being a scientist, there are a lot of scientists that that claim that only naturalism can explain anything. Well, their bias is narrowing, right? All explanations have to have a naturalistic explanation, and any non-naturalistic explanation would not be accepted. So it's, it's kind of a narrowing bias. Whereas, as a Christian, I can say, I'm okay with a naturalistic explanation, and in fact, as a scientist, I love them. And at the same time, I'm open to explanations that lie outside the realm of the natural sciences, right? And, and science, just on a side note, can only answer so many questions, right? Can't tell you anything about George Washington. Can't tell you a whole lot about who you love and who you don't feel that way about, right? Science has limits, and it's okay to recognize those. All right, so I think having a bias is not always bad, but it should be stated. Uh, so definitely, I don't want to criticize Mormons or Mormonism today. I want to look at some of the history, some of the facts, let you make some decisions, and we'll go from there. I'm excited to share some of what I've learned. I've debated Mormons on different issues and in different contexts. 
for, gosh, probably two decades. I'm 33, and even as a teenager in Romania, where I lived, I got into a lot of different conversations with Mormonism, uh, with Mormons and other people that were there. And we'll hear later about how they really do exist all over the planet, right? It is a faith that has grown to about 14 million adherents, and it's present in probably every country on the planet. Maybe not every country, but most. All right, I've, never, I've traveled extensively and lived in seven or eight countries overseas, um, and I've never been in a country where there wasn't Mormon presence. So they're definitely a large uh, organization. So brief history, and I know you guys are going to deal with more of this later, so I'm not going to try and camp out here too long. Joseph Smith was born on December 23, 1805, right? He claimed God the Father, and Jesus appeared to him in 1820 and told them not to follow any religion or denomination of Christianity presently um, on this planet, but that he would reveal something more. And a couple years later, three years later, when he was 17 years old in 1823, he had a vision from the angel Moroni that told him that he would be able to restore true religion to the planet, right, and a true perspective on what Christianity, quote-unquote, was really all about. And that was found in a collection of golden plates, supposedly. Now, these golden plates took some time to translate, and between 1823 and 1830, Joseph Smith was involved in that. We'll talk a little bit more about how that occurred. But in 1830, the Book of Mormon was published, and Mormonism began to grow. Uh, as early Mormons faced persecution, they, first, they faced persecution for various reasons. They endorsed polygamy and uh, polytheism and things like that. And as a result of that, there is a lot of persecution. Again, persecution is always wrong, right? We should be able to love people even when they disagree with us. But they faced that, and they had to move. They moved from New York to Ohio to Missouri and then to Illinois, to Nauvo, Illinois, where Joseph Smith became the mayor, right? After becoming the mayor, he commanded the destruction of the city paper, the um, Novo Expositor, because they published some articles that were disparaging of polygamy and, and of Mormonism as a sect. And so he encouraged the destruction of that facility. Afterwards, he is imprisoned for that, for destroying this printing press, right? And in prison, he, a mob formed outside the prison of about 200 people, and he actually, to his detriment, thought that it was his supporters forming to protect him. In reality, it was the antagonists wishing to harm him. And so some people came and said, you should do something about it. He said, don't worry, they're my supporters. And somebody gave him a gun that day, uh, but he was still in prison in that cell. And later that day, the cell was stormed, and everybody in the cell, including himself, was killed. He did try to defend himself, but was killed nonetheless. And he didn't kill anyone. He did shot, like, shoot into the crowd, but uh, a few people were injured, but nobody was killed. So that was kind of the start. Uh, interestingly, a friend of mine that I went to school with who also got her degree in chemistry, who is a supporter of our ministry and a longtime friend, a graduate of FLC, she just got her PhD in chemistry this year, actually. Uh, she is a direct descendant of Joseph Smith and his first wife. Her name is Janessa Wood. It's actually now Janessa Smith. She had to marry to get the Smith name back, I guess, but um, Janessa Wood. And uh, so there's an interesting connection even to Fort Lewis. After Joseph Smith's death, there were different power struggles and offshoots of the Mormon church, some different splinter groups. And the main uh, body of Mormon believers followed Brigham Young through Nebraska in 1846 into Salt Lake City in 1847, where in July of 1847 they began the city of Salt Lake City, right? And before that time, various Native American groups had lived in that area and had populated that area for a long time.
Okay, so talking about Mormon texts, I want to talk a little bit about the history, some of the different religious texts that they adhere to, and then go on to Mormonism today, some of their different beliefs. And, and I know that you guys had asked what are some of the differences between Mormonism and Christianity, so we'll discuss that a little bit, just to give some perspective. In 1823, again, going back to when the Book of Mormon was received, in 1823, Joseph Smith claimed that Moroni, this angel, appeared to him and gave him these golden tablets, actually told him where to find them, and then he would translate these golden tablets into what is today known as the Book of Mormon. They were supposedly written in Reformed Egyptian, and that's a term that was contrived by the early Mormon church because there's no known language of Reformed Egyptian, so it's not like we can go to Egypt and see Reformed Egyptian. And interestingly, we don't have the golden plates. We've never seen them. There are 11 witnesses from early church history that claim they saw them, but nobody else has ever seen those golden plates, and they're lost now. They're not available to um, observe. But there are transcriptions of what some of those characters look like, and from analysis, they they're not related to any known language. And so nobody knows um, what was originally there or anything like that. Uh, so, but it definitely was not related to Egyptian in any sense. And there's never been an Egyptian artifact uncovered in North America, uh, archaeologically, right? Pre-European exploration here. There isn't really concrete evidence that these plates ever really existed. Uh, so this is something that people would take on faith. We can't, again, go observe those. There is no reason to believe that people then would be able to translate these if they did. The method for translation was very interesting. Joseph Smith used a seer stone, and you can see pictures of it. The church actually still has some of these today. Stones with holes in them, and he would put it... I'll just read you a quote from David Whitmer, one of the early Mormon leaders, about how this process happened. He said, quote, Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat, put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light, and in the darkness, the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English in, to Oliver Cadre, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear, and another character with the interpretation would appear. So that's kind of how they claim that the interpretation process went. That, again, happened between 23 and 30 and it was finally published in 1830. Um, there are other issues, too. So beyond just the reality that we don't have evidence for these plates or for this language, etc., there are some issues that I think even modern Mormon scholars admit, and, and, and I'll share a quote in a minute, where they agree that some of these things are difficult to deal with. And some of those are the reality that the Book of Mormon claims that North America was inhabited by um, Hebrew descendants right from Israel, uh, predominantly the Nephites and the Lamanites. Neither of those people groups have ever been found uh, or any evidence of those people groups. Um, and again, there isn't really any kind of evidence that Native Americans in North America came from Israel, right? Most of the DNA and linguistic evidence points to an Asian um, descendancy, right? Not from Israel. And again, one of the modern Mormon scholars, Thomas Murphy, says, we are in a dilemma. This is a direct quote. We are in a dilemma now. The DNA evidence shows clearly that American Indians are not Hebrews and not Israelites. And so the Book of Mormon kind of relies centrally on that, on that claim, right? Again, just like we don't have Egyptian artifacts in North America, we also don't have Hebrew or Israeli artifacts in North America. Uh, there are definitely differences here. 
So, other archaeological elephants. The Book of Mormon talks about elephants, bees, horses, other animals like cows and chickens, certain grains and fruits uh, like grapes, silk and steel that did not exist in North America prior to European colonization. So those are, those are definitely issues that should be thought through when evaluating uh, the evidence for or against um, these, these different manuscripts, right? And again, as far as how it might um, be different from Scripture, there are some different claims. In the Book of Mormon, it says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem, whereas in Scripture and also from archaeology, we know that he was born in Bethlehem, right? And so there are some different issues there, too. And then also theological differences. Mormons claim that there will be marriage in heaven, whereas the Bible, Jesus actually flat out said there will be no marriage in heaven. And uh, he said people won't be married or be given in marriage in heaven. So there will be a bunch of singles in heaven, right? Because from a Christian perspective, all of those needs will be met in God alone in relationship with him. We won't have needs for kind of some of the uh, personal, maybe physical, sexual relationships that we had on this planet, right? But we will have friendships in heaven as well. That's a different topic, so we won't go too far into that. So there are some differences, and we'll talk about some more difference in, differences in a minute. I kind of just want to talk a bit about the Book of Mormon. That's sufficient, though, on the Book of Mormon. Mormons also have two additional holy books, the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, which deal a lot more with kind of like in-house issues, doctrinal issues within the faith. They're not so much uh, maybe big works like the Book of Mormon that would concern uh, major different issues like that. And also the current prophet has authority to pronounce truth and to make doctrinal changes. And this has happened numerous times in the past, and it continues to happen. Right, The Book of Mormon, it's very interesting. It's had 4,000 corrections since 1830, and all of those were authorized by the current prophet of the church that made those doctrinal changes to the book itself. It's had different revisions and additions. The current prophet is Thomas Monson. And um, here are a few examples of changes. The LDS president, Wilford Woodruff, in 1890 ended polygamy. So before that point, the church had kind of allowed polygamy to go on. Joseph Smith supposedly <laughs> had 27 wives. Um, a lot of it was kind of under wraps. Shortly before he died, I think a year before he died, he preached a sermon where he um, pretty much confirmed that, that polygamy was okay and, and even commanded in, circum in certain circumstances. But since there was so much persecution, they were really hesitant to just be outright about, about polygamy in the early Mormon movement. But in 1890, the prophet of that time flat out put an end to it and said the Mormon church is not going to accept polygamy any longer, right? That also happened in 1978, which is when I was born. And the 1978 revelation on priesthood was dictated by uh, LDS President Spencer Kimball. And it put an end to the exclusion of African Americans from church leadership. So up until that time, for various reasons, African Americans and other minorities had been excluded from church leadership. And in 1978, they officially said they can actually um, be involved in church leadership and things like that. Just right? African Americans? As far as I know, that there were that there were other minorities too, but this specifically dealt with African Americans. This 1978 revelation on priesthood, right? But I know that there were um, some different issues too. So finally, and I want to I want to give credit where it's due, and then kind of explain why I think they're right, and then some of my perspective. They do tr take the Bible uh, as authoritative too, so they don't just rely on these other texts, uh, pro or con, but they also accept the Bible. And you can hear a lot more of this stuff on my show. I love getting into this, and maybe some of my analytical background will come out, so bear with me a bit. But there are many great reasons to trust the Bible, and most people don't know this, so I get super excited about sharing this stuff. 
Most people think, when you mention the Bible, they say, oh, it's been translated so many times, we don't know what was originally said, it has so many contradictions, you can't trust it, etc., etc. The reality is that those things are not legitimate criticisms, and they've been answered for, for literally hundreds of years, and there are evidences that continue to be uncovered even today. And so I want to credit the Mormon Church for still accepting the Bible as authoritative. Basically, in answer to that first issue, the Bible is textually authentic, and the science of textual criticism is the science by which we analyze an ancient text to see if it's what was originally written. And the New Testament has uh, over 6,000 Greek manuscripts, and it was written in the Greek, and over 24,000 early manuscripts. So some of those would be Latin translations from the Greek and so forth. But this is a large body of documents. This is not something that we don't know what was originally written. So the criticism that it's been translated so many times and you can't trust it falls apart because we can go look at the originals. It has been translated many times, and many of those translations have come up dead wrong, right? But we can go back to the original and see what the original really said because there are so many manuscripts. So you, you have famous critics today like Bart Ehrman saying, oh, the, you know, the New Testament has 400,000 errors. And it's really, you might hear those things. Have any of you guys heard that? Bart Ehrman. What Bart Ehrman does is he says like this, basically. Out of those 6,000 manuscripts, 3,000 were written, you know, like maybe 100 years earlier than the other 3,000. I'm kind of simplifying his approach just to make it understandable, and I don't want to spend too much time here. And you'll say, between that, those hundred years, you know, maybe the spelling of a word changed. Like modern English and old English would, you know, C-O-L-O-R versus C-O-L-O-U-R for color. So he'd say, we have 3,000 this way, 3,000 spelled that way. That's 3,000 errors, right? And then that word appears 10 times in the text, so that's 30,000 errors. And so he quickly gets to this, this number of 400,000 errors, and everybody goes, oh my gosh, we can't trust it. The reality is, is 98.5% of those errors are spelling and abbreviation and punctuation errors. They're not substantive whatever. They would not even be able to be translated. The 1.5% that truly are questionable, again, are not questions with the text, but with random copies of the text out of those 6,000. And some of those 6,000 do have problems. But since we have 6,000, we quickly see which ones have problems and we can reject them, right? So the reality is we really know what was written from this large body of evidence, and we can go back to it and see. In fact, the New Testament is the most authentic historical text in existence. And even professors on this campus teach in, in history class. I don't want to say his name because I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I've talked to him before and I've heard students that are in his class, and I think he's, he's actually one of the most loved professors on this campus in the history department, he has admitted that if you reject the Bible as a historical source, you have to reject all other history through the Middle Ages, right? Because it's more tested to and verified than any of it. Of course, whether you accept it spiritually is a different question, right? And I'm not going to tell you uh, that decision. I'll just present the evidence and let you go from there. So it's textually authentic. We know it was originally written. The Bible also has uh, a lot of scientific pronouncements. This is interesting. People say, can science and faith coexist? I say, absolutely, <laughs> right? They absolutely can. The Bible talks about radioactive decay. This is phenomenal. And as a chemistry major, it's something that I almost can't believe that that would be written 2,000 years ago. Hydrologic cycles, atmospheric jet streams, clouds and condensation, the Earth's spherical shape, right? The idea that the Bible said the Earth was flat is... Not true at all. The church at times had positions like that, but the Bible itself said differently. Uh, the expansion of the universe. This wasn't discovered till Hubble, uh, based on Einstein's theories, but the expansion of the universe is mentioned, I think, at least 11 times, but I've heard as many as 16 times in Scripture. Right? And that's something that continues to occur today. Earth's foundation being hung on nothing, the fact that air has weight, 
Hydrothermic vents, entropy, the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics is mentioned multiple times in Scripture. Earth's molten outer core is mentioned in Scripture. It's so phenomenal and interesting to me. Uh, and then, this is great. The Big Bang has come to prove a creation event more than anything in all of history. And Big Bang physics tells us that for many, many years after the Big Bang, there was literally nothing but light and energy, which is exactly what the Bible says everything started out with, with God saying, let there be light. It's a very phenomenal pronouncement from Scripture that has led different, even atheists, to come to a belief in God. And I'll be honest, some of those atheists have not embraced Christianity, but because of what's there, they've been um, shocked. One of those is Antony Flew, arguably the most prominent atheist of the last century, and uh, he just died last year. And shortly before his death, he, he came to belief in God, but he never became a Christian. And, um, but based on a lot of these different scientific evidences, he, he went from being the most prolific atheist. He wrote more books on atheism than anybody in history. And he came from that to, before he died, his last book published was There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Came to Belief in God. Uh, so it's interesting stuff. Okay, the Bible is prophetically accurate without getting into a lot of it. There are hundreds of prophetic uh, statements in Scripture, and we've seen many of those come to pass, and in dramatic accuracy, I mean dramatic, even things that are happening in our lifetimes and our parents' lifetimes, like the, like Israel becoming a nation again, like Hebrew being restored as a language in the end times, and even it says when the Jews would come back to Israel, they'd come as on clouds in the air, prophetic of things like airplanes, right, how a lot of people have come back to Israel. And there are a lot more issues of prophecy, but we won't even get into them. Historical accuracy, just like there's textual authenticity, there's historical accuracy. When the Bible talks about people and places and events, we can go look at those people, places, and events in history and see the archaeological evidences for them. There's a book being published very uh, shortly, I don't even know the title, but it claims that there are 100,000 parallels in ancient history in the book of Acts alone in Scripture. And I know that there are 84 historical pronouncements in Acts that have been verified by modern, by modern uh, archaeologists. Okay, there are a lot of other good reasons to accept the Bible. If you want to talk, to that, talk about that, come talk to me. I get passionate about this, and I could talk for uh, a lot of time. So I want to give credit where it's due and recognize that, that it is a very valid position for the Mormon Church to accept the Bible as authoritative. Okay, modern Mormonism. How many of you know uh, Mitt Romney, who's running for the Republican nomination for president, is Mormon? He has been, in my estimation, unfairly judged because of his faith, right? I'm not a Mormon, but when I decide who I'm going to vote for, I'm going to do that based on evidence, based on positions, based on values, based on all these things. I'm not going to vote based on his sex, his race, his religion, any of that type of stuff. And so I think it's been kind of bad that that comes up as a, as a negative issue, right? I'm not a huge Mitt Romney fan, but it's for issues far different than, than his Mormonism. But it shows me that even today, people can um, not show true tolerance in the right way, based in love and acceptance, right? We can get to a point in a society where we start to develop kind of like a social perspective and then judge other people based on those social perspectives. So I think that that's been an evidence of discrimination against Mormons based on who they are, not based on evidence. And I don't think that we should ever discriminate based on evidence, but we should evaluate a worldview based on evidence and accept a person based on their value as somebody that's created in God's image, and they should be loved. Okay? So don't reject Mitt Romney because he's a Mormon. <laughs> Make your decision based on his values and how they line up with your values and things like that. And uh, 
just on a completely side note, I would encourage you to be politically active and vote today for your senators, right? Uh, start being politically active, guys, because you can make differences. And there are so many things that your generation is going to get to get handed. <laughs> and uh, positive or negative, you guys are going to have a whole lot to deal with. So I would encourage you to be politically active and to be involved in the political process. Okay. Many Mormons do claim that Mormonism is just like a denomination of Christianity. That's spoken more kind of in, uh, in public speaking, but not necessarily condoned by the church. The church literally says that outside the LDS church, there is no salvation. So it is not a denomination, it's exclusive. And I'm not judging exclusivism, re religious exclusivism. There's a right and there's a wrong. We know this in chemistry, we know this in physics, we know this in the natural sciences. We can find truth. Obviously, we all have finite minds, so we're never going to know it fully. But I think that we can come to conclusions about something being right or wrong. I'll share some, some criteria later on that. But the reality is, is um, so I'm not saying religious exclusivism is wrong as far as, as adhering to a faith and believing that that faith is true. In fact, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very exclusive statement saying I'm the only way. So I'm not criticizing them for being exclusive, but just sharing the fact that, um, that it is not just a denomination. And they would agree with that. From the church up, they would say that we are the only way, right? Um, there are different religious obligations that Mormons have that are peculiar and different. I won't even go into them because I don't want them to sound disparaging or anything like that. Um, but uh, and a lot of religious systems have differences that could come across as weird and different to us. I have Mormon friends. I have Muslim friends. I have you know, friends from all over the world that are very different than me. And I think that actually makes some of our friendships very awesome. But at the same time, they're interesting, right? Mormons believe that we will all become God at some point, or gods. And they actually say, as God is now, um, we once will become, and as we are now, God once was. It's an official statement from the church. So anybody living a good Mormon life, in their estimation, can become a god of their own planet. It's interesting stuff. Christianity does not teach that at all. Uh, Christianity says there's one God, he's always existed, and all of us are um, in need of his salvation, and that we'll never become a god ourselves. And so anyway, there are some differences like that. Mormons believe in salvation by works. They believe that salvation requires Jesus Christ's death on the cross. But they also believe that our works are required as well to make that happen. The Bible tells us actually that salvation is by a free gift from God and not by our works. So we don't earn God's favor because we're a good Christian. The Bible says we earn God's favor simply by saying, God, forgive me. And based on our heart of asking his forgiveness and coming to him with that heart of humility, he will accept us. Not because we go to church every Sunday or not because we are part of a certain denomination or not because we do enough religious duties or acts, right? And so there's a difference between these two um, faiths. And um, there are a lot of other differences, which I don't even know if it's valuable to go into all those. I do want to take some time before we open it up for a Q&A to talk about giving credit where credit is due. And this is obviously from my perspective. Again, I have a bias in this. So I'll kind of share some of where I think that they have um, contributed a lot. And I'm sure you guys, I think, are going to do more of that in the next hour, right? Okay. So I think that the Mormon church's support for family values is something that I value as a Christian that believes in biblical family values. And I'll kind of explain why I think those are important. Uh, marriage, in a biblical perspective, is extremely valuable. And here are some of the criteria that the Bible says marriage should be based on. And a lot of this is not known. But it says that men and women are equal in the Bible, which was radical because in the first century AD, there was no equality between men and women. And here in the church, they're saying men and women are equal. 
And in fact, there are different passages that critics try to say, this shows that the Bible is sexist. Like in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that women should not ask questions in the church, but rather at home their husbands should teach them. And people go, oh, that is so sexist, you know? Well, here's what was really happening, and this is really important to understand. Women in that day had no education, zero, right? Whereas the men were educated. So if you were in a meeting like this, in a classroom like this, and you had half the audience with zero education and half the audience that was educated, the questions that would be asked by those that had no education would hold back the whole group. Does that make sense? Because they had no education whatsoever, so the questions would be kind of inferior questions that would stop the growth of the whole group going forward. But what Paul says here is, so he says, you know, the women in that situation, this was a cultural situation. Interesting to note, in the same book, he said that women could prophesy in church, they could speak in church and all this. So we know that there's not this outright discrimination against women there. He does tell the men, you who do have the education, you have a moral obligation to make sure you give what you have to your wife so that she's not behind you, right? So right from the first century, we're seeing this, this command, literally, to condone and adhere to this equality between men and women. And even some passages that might look sexist in reality are referring to some of that equality. And scripture just flat out says, in Christ there is no male nor female. <laughs> we are all one in him. Right? That's in Colossians 3. Marriage in the Bible should be based on equality. It should be based on commitment. Right? I'm married to an amazing woman. Some of you know her. And she and I are married based on our commitment, not on our day-to-day -day fluctuations in emotions, right? Some days you wake up and you think, I don't want to see her, right? Other days you wake up and you're madly in love with her. And she, I promise you there are many more days she wakes up thinking, I don't want to see him. But <laughs> the, the reality, guys, is we have a commitment, right? And our commitment is stronger than our day-to-day -day fluctuations in emotion. And that is what the Bible says marriage should be based on. It's a commitment where you honor your word, where you give somebody your word before God and you don't break that, even when it doesn't feel good, even when you'd like to jump out of it because of different reasons. You stay committed for the long run. And just on a side note, the result of that, who doesn't want a life of commitment where somebody is committed to you and you're committed to them? I'm not kidding you. Aaron and I met here. 13 years ago or something like that. Dated for a couple years, got married almost 10 years ago. And I love her more today than ever. Our marriage is growing, and that commitment that's brought us through times where we had differences has brought us to a point of really loving each other. Not because of how I feel today, but because I know this person. Because we've accomplished a lot together. Because we're raising two beautiful daughters together, right? And so this commitment and equality in marriage are vital. This mutual respect in marriage, serving each other, instead of trying to be served. Jesus even said this. He said that his example to us was serving instead of being served. And he told us to do the same for each other, to serve each other instead of seeking to be served. And that is a foundation for marriage, a biblical you know, view of marriage. And all this has to be done in what we would call in Scripture unconditional love. Agape love is the word in the Greek. And this unconditional love literally means putting somebody else's good above your own no matter how you feel. <laughs> It's saying, I'm going to put your good above mine no matter what. Now, that's pretty good stuff. And now, Jesus himself gave us an example of that, by laying down his life for us and dying on the cross for us, putting our good above his own. And now, Scripture says that's how a husband should treat his wife. Scripture says that we should lay down our lives for our wives. That we should put everything on the line, my, my own desires, my own hopes, my own dreams, my own ambitions. It's second to Aaron, my wife. She's number one and I should live to serve her. And then a lot of people get caught up on this word submission. Like, oh, the Bible says wives should submit to their husbands, right? 
And I think, well, we need to remember the context of that very chapter is a husband, and it says this first, laying down his wife first. So my wife comes into the marriage and says, you're going to give up everything for me? I'm okay with that, right? I can, <laughs> I can buy into that. I can submit to that plan. That's good, right? And she knows with confidence that I'm going to live every day to the best of my ability through God's help to serve her and to put her first. And that word in, in the Greek, that word submission, see, in our word, it means some nasty stuff. Who wants to submit? You know, it conjures up all these ideas of slavery and who knows what else. In the Bible, that word, that word literally was a military word in the Greek. It wasn't even used in common language. And what it referred to is when one commander would be on, an, on a battlefield and he needed help fighting this battle, and another commander would come alongside and say, let's do this together. All my resources are here to help win this battle. So the picture we get in marriage is of a couple coming together, two equals, two commanders, saying we're going to put our, our resources together and we're going to fight the battle of life on the same page. Right? We're going to take it together as a team. It's a really beautiful picture of agape love and acceptance and teamwork and all these things like that. That's the biblical perspective on family values as far as marriage is concerned. And um, I, I definitely credit the Mormon Church for, uh, for supporting those things. And maybe you've heard it too. They have little public announcements that come on the radio all the time about family and taking your wife out on a date and stuff like that. And every time I hear it, even though I'm not a Mormon, I think, way to go, guys, you know. Better, uh, better take my wife out soon, right? <laughs> so it's good. Okay. Uh, sex. The Bible talks a lot about sex, and the Mormon church does too. And I want to give you two acronyms. And I know I'm coming towards the end of this time, and I want to give a good 10 minutes for Q&A. And I think this is important, though, because this is a family value that, that admit it. You're all thinking about it. And you're all talking about it, right? It's not something that we should shy away from. Anyway, from a gr- biblical perspective, sex is supposed to be reserved for marriage and for good reason. And I have two acronyms. One is sex in marriage is great. Sex outside of marriage is awful. And I'm not saying, I'm not condemning people for sex outside of marriage or anything like that. We'll get there in a minute. But anyway, uh, in marriage, G, it stands for sex is grounded. There is a commitment that grounds the whole thing. It's not just an activity, but it's actually a part of a broader commitment. It's our respectful, right? You're not looking for your own good. You're really looking for the other person's good. And you're respecting them for who they are, right? Uh, it's equal. There are two partners that are equal in this. It's not one putting themselves first and trying to live for their own good, but two that are equal. It's agape love-centered, right? Now, sex is awesome, and I can tell you from experience, when two people are in it for each other's good, it makes it sweet, right? It makes it awesome, rather than two people in it for their own selfish good. Okay, finally, T, it's time-enhanced. So, great. Grounded, respectful, equal, agape, love-centered, and time-enhanced. Outside of marriage... Uh, it's ambiguous. There's not a grounding, right? I don't know if I'm going to be with this person tomorrow. Before I got married, I had somebody yelling at me, you need to have sex with Aaron before you marry her. And she goes, I've been with my boyfriend for six years, and how do you know you're compatible, Nate? I said, it's not an issue. <laughs> okay, it's not going to be a problem. But I said, we have a commitment. And she goes, you don't know commitment. My boyfriend would never leave. Within two weeks, her boyfriend of six years had left her. Right? So there was ambiguity. I don't have any commitment or security. Uh, outside of marriage, it's weary. It's performance-based acceptance, right? I don't know if I'm going to be accepted for who I am if I don't perform the way that person desires. It's factional. It's two individuals rather than two equals in it together for the long run. Um, it can be ungenerous, right? I'm seeking my own ends, not somebody else's. 
And finally, it can be lost time, like in that case that I shared, six years down the drain, right? This person's never going to be here again. So the perspective from Scripture is not don't have sex because God's going to get mad at you. That's not the issue. The issue is God made this to be so great you can't fathom how good it will be. And when it's done the way he who created it himself, it will be awesome. So I, I definitely support the Mormon church's stance on that issue. Okay, I definitely uh, support their pro-life stance, and definitely that's something that is close to my heart, you know. Biologically, from the moment of conception, we have living human beings with their own set of DNA, not the mother's DNA, not the father's, but their own unique DNA makeup. Biologic, if you look at all the definitions of life, they all begin at conception. Metabolism, cellular division, movement, using outside resources, all these things begin at conception, not at birth. And so from biology standpoints, it's living. From a human standpoint, it has a human DNA. From an individual standpoint, it has its own unique DNA, not its mother's, not its father's. And so it's a living biological human being. The debate, I've debated this multiple times in public. I've debated abortion doctors and all this, and I've never had good answers to these things. The, the debate doesn't become whether or not this is a biologically living human, but whether or not that human will end up, you know, a lot of times I'll get told, how are we supposed to say whether that life is worth living, because they could end up living in poverty, given a lot of the circumstances. And I, I say, you know, I grew up in pretty close to poverty, guys. Um, nobody should make those decisions about whose life is worthy of living. All life, all life is valuable, and it should be protected. So I really support them in their, their stance on that issue, right? Uh, and again, you're free to disagree with me on all this stuff. I would encourage you, when, when you do disagree, to evaluate your own worldviews and beliefs based on evidence, not based on what I call bumper sticker worldviews. A lot of us will hear a statement or see something and think, oh, that sounds really catchy. But when we evaluate it, it doesn't hold up. Okay? So if you disagree on these things, ask yourself, why do I disagree? What's the evidence that leads me to this disagreement? Right? Okay, they have a great perspective on children and on investing in your kids. Again, from Scripture, parents are supposed to be loving. They're not supposed to be overbearing. They're supposed to train by example and by teaching. And I can tell you, having two little girls has changed my life. It's the greatest joy I've ever had, right? I mean, there's nothing like it. Nothing at all, I promise you. Leaving the house an hour and a half ago, they both wanted to come up and hug me and kiss me. And they're dancing when I put on my iPod this morning. Oh, it's so sweet. But anyway, so I, I value... Uh, the Mormon perspective on families and things like that. Okay, kind of summarizing all this without going too deep and definitely trying to save some time for uh, Q&A, I just want to share that every worldview should be evaluated according to a few criteria. And you might write this down as you evaluate your own perspectives. And I think these could go for anyone, right? Uh, Ravi Zacharias, who is a Christian who was born a Hindu in India, and now he's a major Christian speaker and apologist, um, he describes the criteria for evaluate and philosopher, I should say, and for evaluating our beliefs, telling us that a correct philosophy must address these four key areas. It must address the issue of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Okay? Where did all this stuff around me and myself come from? Why are we here? How should we live? And what happens after we die? It has to have answers for those issues. Also, it must be logically consistent. It shouldn't contradict itself. It must be empirically adequate. It must not contradict the empirical data in the universe, and it should not contradict real life. It should be experientially relevant. Now, I want to just take a commonly held worldview that is not just a Christian, or not just a non-Christian one, not just one that Christians would disagree with, but it's the idea that there is no truth. If you ask most philosophers, 
Most people, they'd quickly say, no, that's not a valid worldview. But I hear it a lot, so let's test it with these criteria. The second you say there is no truth, you cannot say anything about origin, meaning, morality, or destiny, because all those statements would be truth statements. So um, it falls apart at that first level of the criteria. It's not logically consistent, because the second you say there is no truth, that statement itself is a truth claim, right? So if, the, if there is no truth, well, then the statement itself is not true which means there is truth, <laughs> right? So what, if it's true, it's wrong, and if it's wrong, it's wrong. Either way, it's wrong. That's what philosophers call an autophagic statement. It's a statement that eats itself up. It's not logically consistent, right? It's not empirically adequate. We look at physics, chemistry, again, we see that there are truths and absolutes in the universe, right? And finally, it's not experientially relevant. You could not live your life based on the worldview that there is no truth because the second you got shortchanged in the grocery market line, you'd be real adamant that there is a truth and they owe you some money. Right? You could not possibly live your life with the perspective that there is no truth. So we evaluate worldviews based on those criteria. And I want to say today, and this is a bold claim, but as a Christian, and again, I'm biased, but I think it's truthful, I think only Jesus meets all those criteria. Right? Only in Christ do we find true answers for origin. Right? Science and evolution can provide maybe some and whatever you think about those issues, they can provide some answers about how life maybe has changed, but they cannot tell you where all this stuff came from. Science have a big, scientists have a big question mark concerning a lot of this. Uh, even Stephen Hawking, the most famous <laughs> scientist alive practically, who speaks a lot on this, will say the universe just popped into existence. Well, that's, that doesn't cut it, okay? Uh, meaning, why are we here, right? Why are we here? Objective morality only exists if there's an objective moral standard giver, right? And finally, our destiny, what happens. And this is where Christ offers something that nobody else offers. He himself says, flat out, if you put your trust in me, I will raise you up and you'll have eternal life with me. And then he conquered death. And interestingly, on a side note, there's better evidence for Jesus' resurrection than for his continued death. And going back even further, I mentioned Anthony Flew earlier, world's greatest atheist coming to belief in God. Part of his transition from atheist to theist was the issue of the resurrection. He debated Gary Habermas, who I've interviewed on The God Solution, who is a professor at Liberty University. He is the world expert on the evidence for the resurrection, the historical evidence for the resurrection. And he lost those debates, even when evaluated from non-Christian, unbiased, outside standards. They said the evidence, the arguing, the points were all better for the resurrection than against it. You guys, Jesus beat death, and we can see that in history. Even first century authorities virtually agreeing to that fact, okay? But then he promised that he would do the same for you. And just summarizing real simply, the Bible says that every single one of us are loved by God. I mean, nothing you've ever done could get God to quit loving you. Nothing. You could, you could be the most far out there person that you feel Christians would hate. And for any of you that have been hated by Christians, shame on them. That is, I mean, that is the absolute opposite of how God defines himself as love, right? God says he loves you no matter where you're coming from, no matter what your perspective is, no matter what you think, no matter what you do, he loves you. The Bible says all of us, not just the ones that some Christians don't like, but all of us, even the best goody-goody two-shoe Christian kid, are sinners, right? And we need a Savior. We need forgiveness. The Bible tells us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that he took all of our sin on him, and he paid the price so that anyone who trusts in him can have eternal life. That was his promise. That is, I think, the most awesome answer.
to some of these issues, some of these criteria. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much.